For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honour for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and he made perfect. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's no fun, if you've experienced this, being ostracized, being excluded, is it? It's not, it's not fun at all. If maybe you've experienced that in high school or perhaps in grade 7 or 6 or 8, and uh, for whatever reason, people excluded you. You felt ostracized. You felt cast out. Um, in the first century, there was a group of Jewish Christians who'd been completely kicked out, ostracized from their religious and social communities. Uh, try to imagine for a second. You're a solid, law-abiding citizen, but because of your commitment to Jesus, you're suddenly booted out of all the clubs, networks, and social friendships that have made up the fabric of your life. We, we can't really relate to that, can we? Maybe to a small degree, but we can always make new friends, or Facebook friends, or you know, metaverse friends, or whatever it might be. But imagine you've been completely booted. And if that weren't bad enough, the place of worship that you attended from childhood all its people, its services, its ceremonies, its songs, all, exact, all the activities that were so stitched into the fabric of who you are, were just so deeply ingrained into your life, are now gone because you've been ostracized from all of that. And since it's no longer in your life, well, you begin to realize to which these things actually defined you. But now you're no longer welcome there. All the stuff you used to thoroughly enjoy, rituals, ministers, music, large crowds, special days of celebration, they are all gone. That, my friends was the situation for the first readers 
of the book of Hebrews. The first readers, the first recipients of the book of Hebrews. No longer was their worship marked by the grandeur of the temple, where they could see and touch and even smell the worship services. The great company of people, the priests, all the glorious aspects of Old Testament worship which God himself had given. Gone. Now it was all gone. All the friendships, all the connections, all the networks, gone. Now you're left with a handful of a motley crew of people. You don't have all the extravagance you used to have. Unless, of course, it could change if you just go back. Just, just, just go back. No doubt some of them were tempted to do this, right? But that, my friends, is precisely why the author of Hebrews writes this letter. Don't go back. Don't turn around. Don't look in the rearview mirror. Why? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Chapter 1 of Hebrews. Jesus is better than the angels. Chapter 3. He's better than Moses. Chapter 4, he's better than Joshua. Chapter 5, he's better than Aaron. Chapter 7, his priesthood is better. Chapter 8, his covenant is better. Chapter 9, his sacrifice is better. His sanctuary is better. Jesus is better. Do you, do you see? Today, I want us to look at two dimensions of Jesus as priest, as high priest. First, I want us to see Jesus' work as high priest as finished. What Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. But secondly, I want us to see Jesus' work as priest in an ongoing sense. So that probably sounds like it contradicts itself, doesn't it? If Jesus' work is finished, how is it ongoing? Well, that's what I want us to explore. Jesus' work as high priest is finished, yet it's ongoing. His work is finished, but it continues. Well, how does it continue? What does that look like? That's what I want us to explore. But before we do, let's go to God now through our great high priest, Jesus, in prayer. Gracious God, we come to you because of the work of Christ on our behalf. There's one mediator, as your scripture says, between us and you, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we ask, Lord, that you would open eyes and hearts and glorify yourself now. In Christ's name, amen. So there are many, have you noticed this? Um, there are many terms that kind of pop up with generations, words, cultures, where everyone seems to use that language. Uh, let's just, for instance, let's think about the 70s, right? Hey, that's boss. That's groovy, man. That's hip. 
Nobody talks like that anymore, right? Maybe that'll make a comeback and be retro cool or whatever. I mean, I, I was thinking about when I was a teenager in the 90s. There was phrases that I used that if I used them today, it would be bizarre. Like we used to say, that's fat with a PH. That's fat, bro. Or that's the bomb. Or booyah. <laughs> you know, we used to say things like, or, you know, what's up, home skillet, which I don't think you guys said here, but that's, that's, a, that's what we said growing up in SoCal. Certain words, they come and go with cultures and with generations. I've noticed that here, in, even in Australia, by the way. Um, one of my favorite Aussie phrases is fair dinkum. But, but for whatever reason, I, I've noticed it tends to be the dads and the uncles that use fair dinkum more than their sons and nephews and, and so on. All that to say, w would you agree that the word anointed, anointed is not, it's not kicked around very much. You don't see people hashtag anointed. You don't see, well, the, people just don't talk like that. I mean, if you're a tradie, you're not going to pull a hammer, or if you're a tree lover, you're not going to pull out the chainsaw and say, look at this thing, must be anointed, right? Or, or you're not going to sit down with you know, a friend of yours, have coffee, and say, oh, did you have a chance to watch MasterChef this week? Yeah. Oh, those meals look so nice. Those chefs must be anointed, right? But to anoint or to be anointed, though it's strange to us, and we don't use that term, was a very common practice in the Old Testament. That language was very well known. It was, it was all over the place. It was ubiquitous. For instance, prophets were anointed by God. Priests were set apart, washed, and anointed with oil. Kings as well were anointed to carry out their tasks. Actually, the title for Israel's king was anointed one. Now, consider how these three particular people were anointed for the service of God. The prophet, the priest, the king. With me? Now connect that with the title that we're given for Jesus as the Christ. It's not his last name. That's a messianic title. What does that mean? Anointed one. Isn't it amazing? Just when you pull back, you think about prophets, priests, kings, and you think and you realize how Jesus actually fulfills the role of prophet, priest, and king for his people. You see, that's why studying this threefold office reveals more about his person and his work for us as prophet and today as priest, as high priest. Now, again, words come and go, and I'm assuming there's probably many people sitting in this room right now that the term priest is not kicked around a whole lot, particularly high priest. We may not appreciate that or even understand what the term high priest means. So let's do this. Let's sort of park the car here for a moment and, and think about high priest and what that even means. So 
the high priest traces back all the way back to the Old Testament. Now, here's the deal. Back then, you can't just approach God whenever you feel like it. Right? Oh, I just feel like, oh, you know, I feel like talking to God. No, 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 no. God is an all-consuming fire. Did you remember when the Israelites come out of Egypt? Remember when God is going to speak to Moses? And what does the Lord say? I'm going to speak with Moses. You guys need to be in prayer, etc., etc. And if anyone tries to come up this mountain and says, Oh, who does Moses think he is? I'll just, you know, I'll go up there too. I don't know, this bloke's no better than me. Or if anyone tries to come up this mountain or even, or even touch the mountain, I'll strike him dead. I'm an all-consuming fire. You, see, you need a representative to stand in your place. That's why on Mount Sinai, when God gave Moses instructions to build their tabernacle, he also told him to appoint his brother Aaron and his four sons to serve as representatives, as, as priests. These guys were to be set apart. Even their clothing, even their clothing was to be distinct. Look, look at just a picture here of a rendition of a high priest. I don't know how well you can see that, but in Exodus 28, their outfits are described in detail, as in their whole attire from head to toe had meaning behind it. Everything from their embroidered coat to the robe with golden bells and pomegranates. Look, if you look, I don't know how well you can see it, but if you look at the picture, if you look at the breastplate he's wearing, there's 12 gemstones on it. Can you see that? They're representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Each time he went into the presence of the Lord, he would carry these gems with him, representing the people before God. Now, can you see the spiritual significance behind all of that? And it wasn't just their clothing, by the way. Their job description is spelled out in the book of Leviticus. They were in charge of sacrifices and offerings at the tabernacle and eventually the temple. And following Aaron's death, the succession plan was to have his descendants from the tribe of Levi serve in this role. Now, Hebrews 5, I think, if you come there with me, Hebrews 5 has a nice little summary about what the high priest did. So, so let's turn there to Hebrews 5. Go to Hebrews 5 with me. Andrew just read that for us. It says this, for every high priest, if you're there, Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 1. For every high priest, this is talking about, again, the Old Testament here, right? Chosen, notice, notice the qualifications here. Chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. So, so they're selected from among the people. You see that? Appointed to represent the people before God. But here's the catch, though. High priest had to be set apart in his clothing, in his behavior. Right? He wasn't just, you know, like some of the uh, televangelists that we see today running around deceiving people, making money, and claiming things in God's name. That was quite the opposite, actually. Uh, they, these, these were men set apart, holy to God. And so, the problem is, though, they, they had their own sin to deal with still. While they would have been very committed fellas, 
maybe not Aaron's two sons, but why most of them would have been very committed fellas, they, well, look, they still had their own sin. That's, that's what verse 3, sorry, verse 2 says, talking about the high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So he has his own sins to deal with. Earlier, Joel carried his daughter, right? And she won the high five contest. Well done. But if we kept playing that game all day, eventually someone's going to be left behind. Because I could probably, I think I could carry Joel. I could carry Joel. But I could, you know, I could carry Joel. And then, and then, you know, someone could probably carry me and so on and so forth. But eventually someone's going to be left behind, right? Eventually someone, because someone can't move. So, so like, in other words, if the high priest is making, you know, an offering for the people and then for himself, well, you see, it's only temporary. It can't actually hold water long term. And so he says, no, notice what he does here in verse 5. Notice, because of this, he points, what, look carefully what the author does. He points forward to Christ. Christ is the great high priest. Notice what he does in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest. Notice who appoints Jesus as the high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to serve him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you keep reading... There is so much in the book of Hebrews. You are just getting like a flyover this morning. I apologize about that. Maybe we should just preach the book of Hebrews sooner than later. But if you keep reading in the book of Hebrews, what does the author do? Well, Jesus is from the line of Melchizedek, which is very significant. And what, what, there's a contrast, though, sticking with this idea of high priest here and Jesus or the old sacrificial system. So what, what, is the, what does the author do? He, he, he's contrasting Jesus with this old sacrificial system. See, in the Old Testament, the priests brought animal sacrifices day after day. But these could never ultimately, remember I said it's, it has a timestamp, it's temporary, couldn't, can't hold water long term? These could never ultimately take away sin. I mean, listen, given the fact that they were repeated, doesn't that say that they can't ultimately remove guilt? They were, in a sense, inadequate. They were temporary, but they're ultimately inadequate. How can an animal possibly substitute for the sins of a man or a woman? Listen, that's why Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice. Man in the place of man. His fully perfect sacrifice was accepted by God. That's why God raised him from the dead. And now he's seated at the right hand of God. 
he does not operate like the priests of old in a daily repetition of sacrifice. He has no need to. As the high priest, who is himself the sacrifice, Jesus has finished his atoning work. In Christ, friend, our sins are fully and finally forgiven. Completely. Jesus' work as high priest is finished. Now go to chapter 8. Go to chapter 8 here. Because I want you to notice Jesus' work as high priest is finished. Praise God. But it's also ongoing. It's ongoing. I got to be really careful here. Because given that Jesus, and let me say this just, just an aside, this is you know, not you know, bitter rhetoric, but just an aside, just, just, just food for thought, okay? Imagine if, for just a moment, and you could probably read between the lines what I'm trying to say here, imagine just for a moment that, that I say, look, Jesus is high priest, but you guys still need me. You need, like me, as your pastor, to connect with God. And the way in which you do that is you come here to this church and I actually connect you to God through all of these various, let's call them sacraments. How, how does that sound? No good. no good, that's right. No good, again, again, this isn't a rant on Catholicism. As much as do you just see, just take it that basic at face value, the plain sense of what Hebrews is saying. What is, what are they doing? It's an assault on Christ as the high priest. It, it is. Again, let's not grab our torches, and, and I'm not saying anything like that. But you just, it's, and I, you know, my face isn't red and shaking, my hands aren't, you know, I'm not, but I, I just, it struck me this week to think, oh my goodness. You know, we, we, we thank the Lord for Christ, that he is our high priest, and we don't need a priest. In fact, we are a royal priesthood, the Bible says. Just food for thought. So, chapter 8. That said, how is his ministry ongoing, though? Because now it seems like I'm shooting myself in the foot. Sorry, that's an American analogy. Shooting yourself in the foot. You got, anyway, you get, you, get, you get what I'm saying, yeah. How, how, good, good, good. How, how am I... How am I uh, yeah, yeah, now thanks. I distracted everyone. Well done, Rob. Um, how am I... How, what do I mean ongoing? Because it seems like I just was like, you know, trying to show you the contradiction between high priest and, uh, you know, critiquing Roman Catholicism as it needs to be. But, but okay, so um, now I'm saying it's ongoing. Well, how am I any different? Am I just a papist Protestant? No. No, no. Look, look. Hebrews 8. Now, now the point in, in what we are saying is this. We, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Now notice here, notice this ongoing work. A minister, a minister. Interesting word here. Um, it, it's, it's a Greek word. I don't typically do this, but the Greek word here is liturgos. Liturgos. What does that sound like when I say the word liturgos? What, is that, what English word does that sound like? You think church? Boom, you nailed it, Judy Carter. Two points for the back. Liturgy. Uh, can you see where we get that English word from? 
It's derived from this same Greek word here. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand, the throne of majesty in heaven, a minister, there it is, in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So this term refers to the person who leads a service of worship. This is the worship leader, okay? This is Jesus' ongoing ministry, though. Think about what, where we're at here. He's, he's pointed to Christ. We're in Hebrews. He's saying he leads the worship of his people. He leads every worship service as the local church across time is gathered. He leads the worship service here. Rhonda, you did a great job. But it wasn't Rhonda, ultimately. At this church... Christ is the worship leader. Now, let me show you what I mean. Go, go to the beginning of, of Hebrews here. There's a little hints of this. Go, go back to chapter 2, Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2. Notice this, this is a fascinating passage here. The, the words of Psalm 22 are, are put in Jesus' mouth. So, so go to Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, who are we talking about here? Right. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. So the words of Psalm 22 are put in Jesus' mouth here, but this is massive. Psalm 22, Psalm 22, when is that used, if you think about the passion, and particularly Jesus' crucifixion, when is Psalm 22 used? My God, my God. That's right. It's, that's right. He, Jesus pulls Psalm 22 when he is in anguish at his crucifixion. You remember that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, now Jesus knew his Bible, right? So in, in Psalm 22, it, it begins, listen, it begins in overwhelming darkness but ends in words of triumph. You get that? Psalm 22, that was in Jesus' mind. You ever wonder, what's going on in Jesus' mind? What's going on? Sorry, I'm not in the mic here. What's going on in Jesus' mind when he's... What, what passage is he... Scripture would he cling to during his crucifixion? Well, Psalm 22 at least would be one of them. And it begins in this, this, this dark anguish, but ends in words of triumph. That's Psalm 22. Still with me? Now, the author of Hebrews takes this, Psalm 22, and applies it to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and his ongoing ministry. Look at verse 12 once more. Look at verse 12. The author quotes Psalm 22 again. In the midst of the congregation, notice, I will sing your praise. So in true worship, listen, Jesus is present. 
And he's in fact leading the singing. We worship in union with Christ and we sing in union with him as well. He makes our singing give pleasure to his Father. As we assemble together for worship, friends, he comes by his Spirit to be the worship leader, the liturgist, if you want to say that. He takes us by the hand and leads us in to his Father's presence. See, you understand, for those of us in Christ, one day we will be led into the Father's presence by Jesus. But in the meantime, we get a foretaste of that each Sunday as we worship him, the God-man, the Messiah. Do you remember when, do you remember when your parents used to wake you up for school? You know, or to get to work? And at first it just, you might have been kind of slightly aroused by just the noise of it, right? Oh, what is that? In a deep sleep. But when you recognize you're being called by name, you know, get up, whatever your name is, fill in the blank, get up, get up. Maybe it wasn't all that nice often, but get up. Right? When you realize that, you kind of, all of a sudden it starts to dawn on you, oh, I'm being called by name. And, and then you recognize the voice. So that's, that's mom, that's dad, that's, that's whoever. That's, and, and, then, and then you get up, right? Something similar happens when God's word is expounded in the power of the spirit. Jesus is worship leader. Jesus is preacher. His voice awakens us spiritually. We are disrupted out of our spiritual sleep because we are being called by name. So goes the psalm or the hymn. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. Lay down, thou weary one, lay down, thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, so weary, worn, and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. Friends, this is what happens when the word is preached in the power of Christ. This is Jesus' ongoing ministry as high priest. Jesus himself, as the word is taught, through this thing called preaching, through the voice of a mere man, me, with a weird accent, Jesus himself addresses your mind, speaks to your heart, draws out your affections and brings you to faith and repentance in him. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus? He said, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off. Oh, really? I didn't know. Jesus went to Ephesus? No, 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 no. He didn't, but in a sense he did through the preached word. Christ's ongoing ministry is speaking to his people through this thing called preaching. That's why we devote such an amount of time to it. That, that's, that's why we, I'm up here standing. That's why we're not in a circle. That's why we're all just having a chat and a chin wag. We want God's word to be preached. We want to expose you to what's written in here. 
to do an exposition of it. Do you understand? This is why Paul, this is why he said to his protege, his apprentice Timothy, what did he say to him? He says, look, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, so Jesus is coming back, what does Paul say? I give you this charge, preach the word. In season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction, for the time is coming when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, do the work of evangelist. Be a gospeler. Preach the word. Jesus Jesus continues his ongoing ministry when that happens, friends, as worship leader and as preacher. So when we gather here each Lord's Day, we are gathering and being led by our great high priest. We are hearing the words of Christ calling us out of slumber. Do you see how how backwards we have it in contemporary Christianity when we go, oh, I don't really like that worship song very much. doesn't really stir me. Not really my subjective flavor. Oh, okay. Well, bin it then. If, it's, if it is gospel-centered, Jesus, and pointing to him, Jesus is the one actually leading. It's actually beef. You have beef with him. There's melodies you may like or dislike. But at the end of the day, it's not about your subjective flavor. Sorry. And when the word is preached, you know, sometimes I've had people say to me, you must have been following me around all week because you knew some of the things that I've done. And I said, no, no, I have no idea. But the Lord knows. And maybe it's his voice you need to listen to, not mine. You see, Jesus is our great high priest. His work is finished, but he continues by grace, continues to minister to us as high priest, both now and forever. Do you know him as your king, as your priest, as your mediator between God and man? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are our great high priest. And Lord, we are humbled, we're astonished, we are, we stand in awe, really, just how your word continues to transform the way that we think and approach you. We pray now, Lord, as we reflect upon the work that you did at Calvary for us. As we sing truth about you, that you would lead this time. We ask this for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. So it's fascinating because when you think about Jesus as high priest... And you think about 